Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So we've got a great day today. We have a whole bunch of topics that I want to bring up. The op-ed that I published over at Hartman Report yesterday was about how the Republicans are trying to raise a new generation of basically white supremacists. And I also want to get into this question of the January 6th commission. They're literally cutting and pasting off the 9-11 commission. And I'll share with you exactly why that is, a, in my opinion, a terrible mistake. Today's piece is up on Hartman Report about Trump's paramilitaries and how they've turned Republicans either into bullies or into people who are, shall we say, scared crapless, to use the vernacular. But there are things that Democrats can do to fight back. And, and uh, you know, the question is, will they? If they fail to, will our democracy survive? And there's an amazing news study about how Trump supporters share the same narcissistic traits that uh, Donald Trump has. But I want to start out with this question. Is the Republican Party actually working all across the country to intentionally raise a whole brand new generation of basically racist right-wing crackpots? Just imagine if hardcore crazies like Marjorie Trader Greene ran most of the school boards across the country. Just, just think about that for a moment, you know. It's like, this is actually the Republican Party's current plan, and they're gaining some real traction with this. They have been looking for a bigoted wedge issue for 2021. I mean, they have been searching. The problem they're having is that Joe Biden is a white guy. He's about as white guy a white guy as you can get. And he's spent his career being a white guy, and he's never really been a social justice warrior or any, you know, any, any of that stuff. I mean, he's been, a, he's been reasonable and good on, you know, on civil rights and things, but they're having a hard time getting their base freaked out about a white guy in the White House. So it's not like he's Obama, right? So first, they tried rolling out. We saw all this, you know, it didn't catch right-wing media. All you had to do was catch Jen Psaki's discussions in the daily White House briefings where the, she would call on the right-wing reporters and, and they would come out and say, well, you know, here's what we think. And one of the questions was, is this the third term of the Obama administration because 
actually Kamala Harris is running things. Now, what's the association between Kamala Harris and Barack Obama? Uh, you know, they didn't work together. Well, I, I suppose, arguably, they served together in the... Actually, I don't even think they served together in the Senate. Kamala Harris wasn't in the Senate by the time, by the time uh, Obama left the Senate. So, like, what's the association? Whoa, they're both black people. Oh, that's it. <laughs> so, and they tried this. Kamala Harris is really, you know, pulling the strings thing. That didn't work. The third term of the Obama administration didn't work. They rolled all these things out on Fox News and right-wing hate radio, and, you know, it's all over the dial, but it just didn't crank up the base. I mean, you know, it cranked up a a few, but nowhere near enough to win an election with. Then they tried, you know, the the whole, uh, oh, it must be Susan Rice, another black woman who uh, Biden just put in his administration. Must be Susan Rice who's really running things. That didn't fly either. I think, frankly, most of their followers don't even know who Susan Rice is. But they've tried these things, and now what they've found, the one thing that they can do that actually gets white voters in the suburbs to show up at events and yell and scream and make noise and get it in the newspaper and all this kind of stuff is school board meetings and schools in general, public schools, where there is the possibility that we will be discussing race, that there will be a discussion of the history of race in the United States, the, the, the Holocaust committed by white people in this country against Native Americans, the largest genocide in the history of the world, and against people who had been brought here against their will from Africa and then enslaved for several hundred years on this continent by white people. And, you know, any discussion about that, total freakout. Just a total freakout. I mean, you know, this goes back to 1954 and Brown v. Board. You know, it really started, this whole thing about not teaching civics in schools, this really started with Bill Bennett. And Bill Bennett, Bill Bennett is the guy who famously said, that he was the guy Ray, Ronald Reagan put in charge of our education department. He was Secretary of Education. And he gutted civics education. Why? Well, this may be a clue. But I I do know that it's true that if you wanted to reduce crime, you could, if that were your sole purpose, you could abort every black baby in this country and your crime rate would go down. That was Bill Bennett, Reagan's secretary of education, right? Honest to God. And it's so nice being back in the studio where I can play uh, play these clips. So... Now we have this relatively uncontroversial piece of legislation. Tom Cole, uh, you know, the Republican from Oklahoma, and John Cornyn, the Republican from Texas, Republican senators, uh, they signed on to this piece of legislation to appropriate a billion dollars, right, chump change, one billion dollars to give to schools around the country to help teach civics. And, oh, my God, you'd think that a nuclear bomb was about to go off. You'd think that, the, that the, you know, a whole brand new variety of terrorists were about to be unleashed. And in school boards all across the country, people are freaking out. What? You're going to undo what Bill Bennett did back during, you know, when he was Reagan secretary of, of, uh, of education? We can't have that. This is their new thing. Michelle Goldberg pointed out in the New York Times, this was a couple of days ago, that in one particular town where the, this uh, Republican suburbs, where they were going to start teaching just history, right? Just black history. 
She said that election drew three times the ordinary number of voters with right-wing white people, in my phrase, uh, opposed to the so-called cultural competence plan, quote, dominating, dominated winning two school board seats, two city council seats, and the mayor's office. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Won those positions by 40 points each. The Republicans showed up for the school board. This is just incredible, right? What do they have? What can Republicans use? What can Republicans do to reliably crank up their base? Well, the Republican base, ever since Richard Nixon's Southern strategy in 1968, you know, following the three years, four years after the passage of this Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, um, the Republican base has been what used to be actually half of the Democratic base, the old so-called Dixiecrats, the Strom Thurmonds, the, uh, a.k.a. white racists in the South. Well, now, you know, they're scattered all over the country. I mean, they've always been scattered all over the country, but now they're gaining political power in many of the ways that they're scattered around the country. So uh, they're, just, they're just flailing. Anyhow, James in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, James, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I uh, heard you talking about the school board meetings and regarding education. I'm mm-hmm. trying to get everybody to listen to Trump's September 17th speech regarding education. It will curdle your blood. Okay, tell me about it. Well, just what you're saying. He's getting right into dumbing down the population, especially regarding anything negative that's happened in U.S. history. I mean, anything negative. It was ridiculous. Is this, was this... Me. Was this a, a an, act, an actual read it off the prompter speech, or is was this just one of his rants when at one of his rallies? Yes, it is, and and uh, you can pull it up, and I don't know exactly yes, how all my friends have been doing it, but you can pull it up and you can get it September seventeenth, twenty twenty. Okay, last yeah. September. But but like I said, is it was this a a a prepared speech that he read? In other words, was this like uh, did this come out of some kind of policy discussions in the White House, or was just this just some crazed rant he went off on during a during no, a no, no 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 no. This was a prepared speech that he read. It was. It was uh, very direct. Uh, it was a speech. It was not some rant. Huh. Seventeen. Uh, Sean, can you make a note? 17. September seventeen, please. I, I I don't have a pen here, or, or I do, but I don't. I can't get to it easily and quickly. Pull that up and, and um, play it back, and and I guarantee anybody w- with a rational mind it will scare the pants off you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you recall the main points he made, James? Yes. Do not teach things that will make our children scared about our country. Uh, see, the, that, that's, that's an interesting take, and, and it's a somewhat different take than the one that typically is used now in the school boards, which is um, by teaching the bad things that America has done in the past, you are teaching children to hate America, and we don't want to do that because that interferes with patriotism. That's exactly what this speech was. Oh, really? So he was, he was yes, making that point, exactly, too. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Word for word, you just about got all of it, and it's uh, not real long, of course, mm-hmm. but um, uh, I guarantee you it will scare you. 
I will have to go off in search of that, James. I appreciate the, the heads up, the tip, and I can uh, wonder nice. September 17th. Yeah, you one, can play it back for Halloween. It'll be a big hit. <laughs> okay. Thank you, James. Yeah, one of the nice things over at uh, HartmanReport.com is that I can edit articles that I wrote weeks ago. Uh, this was one that I just wrote yesterday, but, um, you know, I can I can go in and add that you know, once I've vetted it to that article. That should be great. As I said, there's this whole bizarre, the whitening of our public education stuff, right? And in fact, in Oklahoma, the governor of Oklahoma, Republican Governor Kevin Stitt, just signed HB 1775 into law. This is a law that explicitly restricts the teaching of critical race theory in the state and bans mandatory diversity training. Right. So now it's not just local school boards, it's entire states making it illegal to teach about the history of America. So I put that before you for comment. <laughs> Your thoughts on how we can most effectively push back against this. The other, the other point that I wanted to make this morning, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here after the break, but the other point, and I think it's a really important one, is about this so-called January 6th commission. Kevin McCarthy is coming out, you know, the, the, the House Minority Leader coming out and saying, uh, nah, I'm not in favor of this. And of course, he doesn't want to have to testify that he was on the phone to Trump during January 6th, during the, during the siege, begging Trump to call off his shock troops, his stormtroopers, his paramilitaries. And Trump said, oh, I guess they're more concerned about the election than you are, Kevin. Or words to that effect. But I also, I agree with Kevin McCarthy that we should not have a 9-11 commission. And here's why. The Democrats, I, I saw two different Democrats yesterday on television talking about how they're putting together this commission. And they said, we are, you know, literally copying and cutting and pasting from the 9-11 commission you know, from the uh, legislation that created the 9-11 Commission into our legislation that would create a January 6th Commission. Literally cutting and pasting. Well, the 9-11 Commission, I mean, just think back to 9-11 for a minute. A year before George W. Bush ran for president in 1999, he told his biographer, Mickey Herskowitz, that, in fact, I can play this for you on, on my 360. I've got it again. This is what George W. Bush, this is uh, Cindy Sheehan, whose son, Casey, died in the Iraq war, the illegal Iraq war. I uh, said, so, you know, she, uh, you, you recall Cindy Sheehan. She and I stood outside George W. Bush's gated community with bullhorns yelling killer at him. Uh, there's pictures of that floating around the internet someplace. But anyhow, this, here's what George W. Bush said as he was contemplating a run for president. As a matter of fact, in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend Mickey Herskowitz, then-Governor George Bush stated, One of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander-in-chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. There you go. We now know that Bush planned to invade Iraq illegally, 
number one. Number two, that with regard to 9-11 itself, which was the, you know, the theoretical basis for the invasion of Iraq, with regard to, the, to 9-11 itself, Sandy Berger, who was the, the national security advisor to President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore, on this program, Sandy Berger came on this program and said, I told Condoleezza Rice, who was the incoming national security advisor for George W. Bush, and I know from personal knowledge that Al Gore told Dick Cheney and that President Clinton told George W. Bush, the incoming president, that their number one security priority should be Osama bin Laden because he was determined to attack us inside the United States. And then, of course, there's the August 6th, you know, 2001 memo where the CIA flew a guy down to Crawford, Texas to tell, to tell Bush that. None of that stuff made it into the 9-11 report because the way that they constructed the 9-11 the commission was, we're not going to look back at our own previous failings. We're only going to look at what happened. And maybe the CIA and the FBI should talk better. So they set it up in advance so it wouldn't look bad for a Republican. I guarantee you they'll do the same thing with the January 6th commission. The whole idea of a bipartisan commission, in my opinion, is nonsense. You cannot trust Republicans. And if they're half of the commission, and if you're getting Republicans to help, you know, to agree to this legislation to make this thing happen, you're going to have another cover-up just like the 9-11 commission which covered up Bush's complicity in, number one, allowing 9-11 to happen, and number two, then using it to lie us into a war with Iraq, which had nothing to do with 9-11. So I'm skeptical, shall we say. In fact, I'm outright opposed to a January 6th commission, at least the way they're talking about doing it now. I think this, the, the January 6th needs to be investigated by the Department of Justice by career prosecutors. Or we need to appoint a special counsel. Commission, screw the commission. Get a special counsel, a prosecutor. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. And that special prosecutor should be looking into how the Trump administration actually encouraged January 6th. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is R.I.P. G.O.P., How the New America is Dooming the Republicans by Stanley B. Greenberg. This is from the introduction. This book tells an amazing story, and if you hadn't seen what happened to America over the last four years, you wouldn't believe it. It even has a happy ending that's none too soon for all of those of us who've had enough fighting, division, and enough politics. This time, the end of politics portends a country united and finally liberated from gridlock to address the nation's most serious problems. It ends with the death of the Republican Party as we've known it while the survivors work to recreate the party of Lincoln, relevant for our times. It ends with the Democratic Party liberated from the nation's suffocating polarization to use government to advance the public good, as the country used to expect. You see, our country is hurtling toward a new America that is ever more racially and culturally diverse, younger, millennial, more secular and unmarried, with fewer traditional families and male breadwinners, more immigrant and foreign-born who are more concentrated in the growing metropolitan areas, which are magnets for investment and for people. The new America encompasses a vast array of family types and working families in which both the men and women face growing challenges. The new America is ever more racially blended and multinational, more secular and religiously pluralistic. The new America embraces the country's immigrant and foreign character, it now includes the college-educated and suburban women who want respect and equality in a multicultural America. America was shaped by major social movements, civil unrest, political battles, and government action at historic junctures, and by the choices the two national political parties took that created a more modern America. Each moved America away from traditional strictures on blacks, women, and immigrants. Each juncture made America freer, more equal, and more democratic. With the Democratic Party on a trajectory that aligned Democrats with the country's emerging civic norms and alienated the Republican Party from the country and from itself. America was changed profoundly by the battle to pass the civil rights laws that ended racial segregation and ensured blacks had the right to vote. Bipartisan immigration laws reopened the country to non-Anglo-Saxon immigration in 1965 and greatly expanded it in the late 1980s. The Supreme Court put women on a path to greater independence and equality when it declared in 1965 that women have a right to privacy and birth control, and in 1973 when it made abortion legal. And these different choices came to fruition with the election and re-election of Barack Obama, the first African-American president whose activist government produced a Tea Party movement and revolt that accelerated the polarization of the country and made attributes about race and immigration matter as never before. The Tea Party and Donald Trump battled to stop history and stop government. At each juncture, the Democrats were deeply divided, sometimes more than the Republicans. This was true on matters of civil rights, immigration, and abortion. Nonetheless, after these defining social issues were settled in law or by the U.S. Supreme Court, 
National Democratic leaders embraced and defended the social changes and new freedoms that aligned the party with a modernizing America and its values. After more than five decades of such choices, the Democratic Party is associated with equal rights, equality, gender equality, tolerance, openness to diversity, and more. The Republicans' electoral base was in the South and later in the Appalachian Valley and rural states across the country, so at each juncture they escalated their battle against these national changes. The party's national leaders ignored their own deep divisions and worked inventively to show they were champions of white people during the battle over civil rights and affirmative action. Its leaders scorned the sexual revolution and championed to this day a constitutional amendment to make abortion illegal. They were opposed to women breaking free of the patriarchal family and winning equality. They mobilized against illegal immigration in the states and nationally fueled by Patrick Buchanan's three campaigns for president. Newt Gingrich led a revolution in the early 1990s that put the GOP into a total war footing against the Democratic Party, determined to expand the liberal welfare state and marginalize conservatism. But those forces defeated him. The Tea Party led the GOP's life and death battle against President Obama and his Affordable Care Act, fueled by Tea Party protests that elevated white racial resentment and hostility to immigrants. Defeating and delegitimizing President Obama was the last chance to stop the new America from winning. Obama's 2008 election, the Wall Street bailout, and the searing battle to pass Obamacare produced the Tea Party revolt and the Tea Party wave election of 2010, the most consequential election of our lifetime. It gave the Tea Party-fueled Republican Party effective control of the U.S. House and Senate, two-thirds of the governorships, and more than 60% of the state legislative chambers, which rushed to radically redraw the legislative and congressional maps to ensure big GOP majorities for a decade. The Tea Party-led GOP pushed the country into fiscal austerity and to deconstruct government to stop Democrats from using government for positive ends or paying off its growing coalition with new entitlements. The book R.I.P. GOP. Lloyd in Framingham, Massachusetts. Hey, Lloyd, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. Um, I want to talk to you about, uh, about the commission or the you know, proposed commission. I'm 65 years old now, and... I'm a born New Yorker, grew up in Jersey, and in my lifetime, there are two commissions that have been a complete fraud. One was the 9-11 Commission, and one was the Warren Commission. I agree. I'm both. Complete frauds. I grew up watching the, uh, those buildings be built, you know, the World Trade Center, and to see them, you know, my brother was uh, an employee, actually, until two weeks prior to them oh. being blown up, and uh, I thought he was actually still there. And um, anyway, that's not why I call. I call about the the uh, commissions. I don't care what the Republicans think or do on this issue or any other issue. As a Jewish American, I see the, uh, the Republican Party as a Nazi party at this point, and just a continuation of what you always talk about, uh, the 1600s and uh, you know, group of guys on horseback, white guys chasing after yeah, uh, manifest destiny and property. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the whole thing. That's how I see them. So I don't really care what they think. Um, I want, I want the Democratic Party, like they did in the early seventies, 
And the one thing that did work during my lifetime is Watergate. With what you just mentioned before the commercials, a special prosecutor. Exactly. That's how we got Nixon. Exactly. Archibald Cox. That's what I want to see. That's what I want to see. I want to see the elected officials of this country do the hard work, do the research, do what has to be done constitutionally, and do it. And not a commission not responsive to the people of this country. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think that everybody should be calling the member of Congress, 202-224-3121, and telling them, we don't want a commission, we want a special prosecutor, or whatever the modern version of that is. The special prosecutor law has expired, and I think the independent counsel law has expired. Um, But, you know, they can always pass another one. Uh, Yeah, I might get blocked in the Senate, who knows. But, um, you know, that's what we want. We we want an actual serious investigation. You had Archibald Archibald Cox in 1974, investigating Leon. Richard Nixon, and that brought about the end of the Nixon administration. Archibald you had Lawrence, Cox, Leon Jaworski, yep. Peter Rodino, yep. all those guys. Yeah, well, they yeah, but, but Cox was the investigator. The rest of them, you know, the, those guys were in Congress. And then in 1992, we had, well, actually, it started in 1987. In 1987, Lawrence Walsh was appointed special prosecutor to look into Iran-Contra, into whether, you know, the, the Bill right. Casey and the, and the, and the uh, Reagan campaign back in 1980 cut a deal with the Iranians to hold the hostages to make Jimmy Carter look bad so that Ronald Reagan would get elected president. And that commission was on the verge of making indictments. They, actually, they had already gotten three convictions. Oliver North was one of them, by the way. Casper Weinberger was another. They had already gotten three convictions, and they had two more people who who were queued up, and and Lawrence Walsh had just subpoenaed George Herbert Walker Mm. Bush, the president, who they had just subpoenaed his diaries from the 1980 election, and those diaries would have nailed him as being complicit in that. At this point, you know, Reagan was was uh, senile and and you know, Alzheimer's and not even responsive. So right. so they they had given up on going after Reagan, but they were looking at Bush really seriously. And so what did George right. Herbert Walker Bush do? This is three this was 6 weeks eight, 6 or 8 weeks after he lost the election. This was December 24th, 1992. He lost the election. Bill Clinton's going to be president in about 8 weeks or 6 weeks whatever it is. And he asks his attorney general, a guy by the name of Bill Barr, what should I do? How do I, how do I avoid this special prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh? And Bill Barr said, pardon everybody, and nobody will be able to testify against you. And that's what, that's what George Herbert Walker did, what Bush did. He pardoned everybody on, on December 24th. 1992, look at, you know, go into the New York Times Wayback Machine and just look at the headline. Screaming, you know, six-column headline. You know, uh, uh, prosecutor assails cover-up, Bush pardons Weinberger, you know, stops Weinberger investigation, etc. Completely right. And, and, Completely right. And, and that's how he got out of it. And I don't think that uh, President uh, Biden is going to pardon anybody to, to avoid uh, Donald Trump looking bad. You know, so... Let me say one more name. One more yes, name sir. and I'll go. The late great Congressman Henry Gonzalez, yeah, who was nailing it against the wall on the on the Iran Contra. You're right. He was one of the best. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Lloyd. All thanks right. for the call. I got I got to move along, but uh, you know, spot on. Dennis in Aptos, California. You wanted to talk about the education rant that I started with. Do I have that right? 
Yeah, you do, although I'm, I'm flexible. But yeah, you know, I, I taught for 20 years and I'm a liberal Democrat progressive. And yet there was always like um, in any I, I worked at about six different schools and there were always a, a small vocal, very vocal minority of Republican conservative teachers. And, you know, at times we had to review uh, textbooks. And this is the last time I, I can remember very well. It was in around 2007, I believe. And this one teacher really objected to the fact that they that there was like a, p- a whole paragraph about Nancy Pelosi becoming the first speaker, a uh, female speaker of the House. Oh, horrors. And, <laughs> horrors. Yeah, Where yeah. are my spelling salts? <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, he, he, he went on like, well, there's too much in here about, you know, the women's rights movements of the 70s and 80s. And, you know, just that kind of, you know, <laughs> yeah. this makes America, this makes American history look bad. Uh, yeah, I, I, I saw pockets of that kind of resistance here and there. Uh, switching, though, to the, I, I couldn't agree with you more about this, uh, uh, what are they going to call it, the one one six twenty one commission? Uh, yeah. I, I hope it doesn't happen. And the reason is because, you know, unfortunately, you're going to have again with Pelosi and these spineless Democrats, they're, they're going to allow these Republicans who are on the committee to say, well, let's look into Black Lives Matter and Antifa. They're going to make that the focus, right. not what not what their ilk did on January 6th. Well, and these commissions is, go in with predicating assumptions. You know, the, the Warren Commission, the predicating assumption was that Castro had was responsible for killing Kennedy. So they had to cover mm-hmm. up anything that, had, that might have pointed in that direction because the American people then would have demanded a response which would have caused World War III. That's what Lyndon Johnson believed. That's what he told Earl Warren. That's why Earl Warren walked out of the office with tears streaming down his face in that iconic photograph. Um, you know, when they when they when Johnson talked Warren into creating the commission. And of course, the 9-11 commission was done, you know, was the predicating assumption was this is not our fault. This was not George W. Bush's fault. This was not Dick Cheney's fault. You know, maybe there were errors made by low-level functionaries, but this was not anything that happened at the level of politics in America, which of course was wrong. And and we'll have a predicating assumption for this one like, well, maybe this was caused by black people and Black Lives Matter. Dennis, thank you for the call. Spot on. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Sandra, what's on your mind today? Oh, I was just uh, hearing some of your earlier callers, and I have to agree, I think a commission is the worst idea, because it will go on for years. Everyone will have forgotten anything that it was about, and it'll all be watered down to the point that it won't mean anything. But my thought was, the whole point of civics is to teach how this government, how this country works, and the mistakes it makes, and so many examples are out there by Nixon, Reagan, the Bushes, Trump. I mean, there's <laughs> Democrats that have made mistakes, too. Well, hey, you know, Lyndon so Johnson and the war in Vietnam. Yeah, and there's so many that they could they could use those as teaching moments of, here's what they did, here's what you need to recognize for the future, should it happen again. What's the and old saying? Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it? Exactly, exactly. And Republicans are so guilty of so much that maybe people will begin to realize, wait a minute, if I side with these people, I'm just as bad as they are, and look what they've done. Yeah, yeah. It is uh, uh, problematic is the wrong word. The idea that, I mean, just think for a minute, uh, Sandra, that this goes back to the 1980s. I mean, this has been a 40-year campaign to prevent our young people from learning about 
how their government works and the history of the United States. Literally a 40-year campaign kicked off by the guy who said that we could we could end crime in America by aborting all the black babies or reduce crime. Yeah. And they're still doing this. They're still going yeah. on with this. And it still activates and motivates their base. And it's still widely unknown. I mean, this is not something yeah. they talk about much on the media. I mean, you might see it occasionally on some of the shows on MSNBC, but it's just not covered. Sandra, I got to move along, but thank yeah. you. Thank you for the story. Sure. And thanks for thanks for the call. It's great to hear from you. I also wanted to mention, given that our largest police agencies in the United States operate under the aegis of the Department of Justice, the, you know, the Federal Bureau of Investigation being the most well-known, although there are others, but principally it's the FBI. And the FBI has been investigating Trump for a while, apparently. There is some debate about whether they've been protecting him or investigating him, during the, uh, particularly during the Bill Barr time. But they're on it again. And we now have, you know, this blockbuster story that hit the news last night. I believe the Washington Post was the first to break it, that a grand jury has been impaneled. Apparently now there are multiple grand juries. What's the old saying? You know, a, a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Well, Trump bears some resemblances to a ham sandwich, including the white bread on the outside. But let's say that happens. Let's say that, you know, one of these grand juries says, yeah, you know, this guy committed tax fraud. This guy committed bank fraud. I mean, you know, they've already nailed him for fraud with regard to his, his uh, so-called university. He had to pay a $25 million fine for that. They've already nailed him for fraud with regard to his so-called foundation that uh, was taking in money from donors and using that money to buy paintings of Donald Trump to hang in Trump properties. I mean, they've nailed him for that stuff. But those things didn't send him to jail or to prison. Tax fraud? Let me tell you about Al Capone. You know, I mean, he was a guy, right, you know, one of the most famous bootleggers of his era. They couldn't bust him for bootlegging, but they knew he was making money on it, and he wasn't paying his taxes on that money. And so Al Capone went to jail for taxes and serious jail. Trump could, too. So what happens? Do the maggots show up on the streets? Do they go underground? Do you start seeing, you know, targeted harassment or even, you know, violence directed toward Democratic politicians, or for that matter, Republican politicians like Liz Cheney, who, who are essentially saying, yeah, this guy is not, he doesn't represent us. He's, he's a crook. He's a grifter. He's lying to you. Haven't you noticed? I mean, let's keep in mind when in 1923, when Adolf Schickelgruber, uh, well, Adolf Hitler at that point, led a merry band of drunks from a bar in downtown Munich to the seat of, of Bavarian government, to their state, their equivalent of a state house, and tried to arrest the governor and seize power, you know, seize the state of Bavaria and secede from, from greater Germany. Sort of like, you know, one of the fantasies of one of the Bundy boys here. When he did that, they arrested him, and they put him in prison for sedition, for trying to overthrow a government. And while he was in jail, he wrote a book, and his movement grew, and Rudolf Hess, his good buddy, got out there and was stirring stuff up. And that led us 
you know, that led us to this. And, you know, is that what's going to happen again? Is that what's going to, you know, is, is Donald Trump going to grow from being in jail? Or is he going to be able to just, you know, employ a barrage of lawyers, as rich people do in America so often, and hold off the prosecutions until he's, you know, in his 90s or has passed away? I mean, you know, how is this going to play out? Will it be the end of our national, long national nightmare, or will it be the beginning of a brand new one? And what's going to happen if they indict his kids? I mean, it certainly seems that they're up to their eyeballs in all of it, all three of his kids. This is a family of grifters. I'm guessing probably Melania has been able to keep her distance and say, you know, I don't want to know, Donald, do not tell me. You know, like a good mob spouse does, a good mob wife does from the movies. But how much police reform is needed? And what do we do with this? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Harbin Book Club is The Cult of Trump. A leading cult expert explains how the president uses mind control by Stephen Hassan. This is from the introduction. Just beneath the surface of Trump's woe is me facade is a messianic streak. He may not come out and say he believes he is a messiah, but he has done nothing to dispel the notion popular among some Christian followers that God has chosen him to be their leader. Certainly, he makes no bones about the fact that he is the only one who can restore America to an imagined past glory and save us from a terrible future. One of Trump's earliest campaign moves was to establish the image of a great shining wall in the minds of his followers. The wall was a key piece of Trump propaganda to insulate, isolate, and elevate America from the rest of the dangerous world. The idea was actually suggested by political consultants Roger Stone and Sam Nunberg, who were looking for a mnemonic device that would keep Trump on message. Trump didn't love the idea at first, but he tried it out at a rally and the crowds went crazy. It turned out to be a stroke of marketing genius. Not only did it play on the us versus them trope, but it also allowed Trump to conjure images of murderers and rapists amassing at the southern border. It allowed him to instill fear in the hearts and minds of his followers, far beyond what is the norm at campaign rallies, and yet straight out of the cult leader playbook. The Muslim ban, which Trump tried to implement early in his presidency, was a variation on this theme, as many of the Christian right fear that Islam wants to rule the world and impose Sharia law on Americans. Trump uses all kinds of cult tactics, lying, projecting his weaknesses onto others, deflecting, distracting, presenting alternative facts and competing versions of reality to confuse, disorient, and ultimately coerce his followers. Repetition programs the belief into the unconscious, but fear-mongering tops the list. In my experience, phobia indoctrination, the creation of fearful thoughts to promote and reinforce a desired set of beliefs or behaviors in followers, is one of the most powerful and universal techniques in the cult leader's arsenal. This is why Trump spends so much time, so much air and Twitter time painting a frightening picture of the danger posed by immigrants, Mexicans, Muslims, the migrant caravan. The more vivid the thought or image installed in people's minds, the greater hold it has on us and the less susceptible we are to rational or critical thought. There are other enemies in Trump's world, globalists, radical left-wing Democrats, socialists, Hollywood actors, the liberal media, all of whom want to destroy America. 
Inspiring fear of real or imagined threats overrides people's sense of urgency. It makes them susceptible to a confident authority figure who promises to keep them safe and can make them more compliant and obedient. Fear defines Trump's philosophy, his personality, and his presidency. It is also his definition of power, according to Bob Woodward's aptly titled book, Fear. In it, Woodward reported that Trump told him, quote, real power is, I don't even want to use the word, fear. Trump, like cult leaders and dictators throughout history, seizes upon people's needs and fears and amplifies them. Like these authoritarian leaders, he may manufacture problems that do not exist and then say, trust me or believe me, and promise that only he can fix it. Given the right circumstances, sane, rational, well-adjusted people can be made to consider and ultimately believe the most outrageous leaders and propositions. There is a method to their madness. Cult leaders may look and behave differently, but even the craziest, most chaotic ones follow a similar pattern. While they usually have no academic training, they are masters of human psychology, especially social psychology. They understand that human beings are social creatures who, at some level, are wired to follow leaders and powerful members of their group. They know that they can confuse people with false information and lies, and then sow doubt by claiming that they never said what they said in the first place. People like to think they're rational and in control, but the lessons of history and social psychology demonstrate time and again that simply ain't so. We go about our ways and our lives using unconscious mental models. When cult leaders manipulate these models in subtle and overt ways, we can be persuaded to believe and do things we might never have considered without such systemic psychological influence. Ultimately, their goal is to make people dependent and obedient. Before the 24-7 world of smartphones and the internet, cult leaders would physically isolate members in order to control all aspects of their lives, their behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions, or what we call the BITE model of indoctrination, B-I-T-E. But physical isolation is not always necessary for indoctrination to occur. Through the media and the internet, people can be indoctrinated and even recruited on their smartphones or in their own homes. Some cult leaders, including pimps and human traffickers, use smartphones and digital technology to monitor and control their followers. Taken to an extreme, the indoctrination process can break down a person's fundamental identity to such an extent that they could be said to have a new pseudo-identity cast in the image of the group's leader or ideology. In her documentary, The Brainwashing of My Dad, Jan Senko shows how her once loving and liberal father, Frank, came to espouse hate-filled racist views after listening to Rush Limbaugh and other right-wing talk radio hosts for many hours a day while commuting to work. He was essentially radicalized by these shows and also by Fox News television. I have met and heard about followers of Trump who have undergone radical personality changes, adopting viewpoints that would have been abhorrent to their former selves. Perhaps most confounding is how so many devout Christians have come to believe that a man who cheated on his pregnant wife was handpicked by God. The book, The Cult of Trump. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. Hey, I wanted to say something about this Axios article. When Trump was like right after January 6th and right before Joe Biden was sworn in. Oh, what I was talking about yesterday, about how he was trying to basically uh, pull our troops out of every country that, in, in, in my opinion, he had been told to pull our troops out of. Yeah. Like yeah, Germany. Yeah. But it's really, really important, in my opinion. And I just and why is it important? Because we are still very much on the cusp of fascism. And that article proves it. Look, that whole article kind of makes uh, Douglas McGregor seem colonel, retired colonel, 
green to gray. I've, I've worked with so many of them. All right, it kind of makes him seem like the hero, but he is not. Okay, he is a lot like from the school of Mike Flynn, who I've known for thirty years. I heard it from this Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer. You've known Mike Flynn has, for thirty years, Dave. Yeah, as a subordinate. Wow. Now, I want to make that clear. I want to yeah. make that clear, not as a general, okay? But because that, that, that goes to my point, all right? Look, Mike Flynn is not dumb. I, I, I'm guilty because I've said he's a flake. I've said he's not the mm. brightest guy. That's how other generals look at him. Mm. Compared to Trump, Mike Flynn is a genius, okay? Yeah. I mean, I guarantee it. And they are not going to make this mistake again, Tom. All right, this, this Douglas McGregor was not the hero. He's the same way. Yeah. All right, and Douglas, and he's like Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer. I, 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 I get it all. Dave, what, all can right. you please make your point? All right, my point is this. All right, if you're against racism, they're going to call you a Marxist, okay? They truly of believe course. it. These are true believers. Well, well Tom, I mean, all right, I, all right. I, let me put it this way. I'll make my point. I'm an atheist, okay? Uh, if I was a praying man like you, I, I see the challenges Joe Biden has, and I see how close we are to fascism. I would say this, as an atheist even, pray for our president. Yeah. Oh, I'm with you. We, we, we need to be doing everything we can to support and not just President Biden, but the entire Democratic Party right now and the people who are working within the party to try to make it better and to make it work better. Thank you. Well said on all points. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Helena in Vancouver, Washington, right across the river from us. Hey, Helena, what's up? Yes, hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. I do think that we have to keep reminding everybody who is responsible for half a million dead Americans and who is was creating and is creating the, the hate and divided state, states of America. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would like to add to why, uh, you know, why I think the country is racist. 
uh, so the addition to the exception, as long as we are going to, you know, use the exception of the rule as a proof that we are not racist, I think mm-hmm. this is a proof that we are a racist country. And as long as uh, uh, we as a government deny policies and laws that are protecting minorities, we are a racist country. And as, as long as we have to protest killing minorities, it's a proof mm. to me that we are a racist country. As long mm. as the minorities have to have a talk with their children, we are the racist mm. country. As long as our history books avoid teaching us the history, we are the racist country. And I would like to use this very simplified comparison. It's like just because a man beats his wife only on Mondays and Wednesdays, but bring her flowers on Fridays, it doesn't make him a good man. He is still the abuser. Yeah. So that's, that's about it, Tom, you know, uh, because Biden said what he says is a proof that we are the ra- we are not the racist country, are just the completely opposite. I, I can see, I see this opposite that if our president has to talk about racism in the ways uh, and, and creating laws, you know, uh, this this is the proof that we are still quite a racist country as a system. Maybe not individual people, because I do agree that we have, that we are waking up, which mm-hmm. is very promising. I agree. I agree, and and I think it's it's very well said, Helena. And the exception that proves the rule, you know, was just so conspicuous with Tim Scott. Yes, I almost included that in my op-ed, but these phrases that are rather toxic about. You know the the one slave who kind of sold out the other slaves in the in the plantation. There are phrases to describe those people. I didn't want to use that kind of language. I didn't even want to imply that kind of language. It's not my place to do it, and so I didn't include any of that. You know, kind of the, the exception that proves the rule in the article. Um, but I think it was fairly obvious to most people watching. I really do. Helena, thank you. Yes. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you for watching us on. Yep, my, my, my pleasure, and thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. And uh, this is from page 180. The title is What We Need to Remember. The chapter title, the subhead is The Slavery, Losing Your Freedom of Civilization. Every empirical study of both historic and contemporary cultures finds that the more complex and hierarchical a culture is, the harder the people in it must work and the more frantic their lives are. Just look at how many hours a week the average middle management executive works, about 60. And how many families have two 40-hour-per-week workers devoting 80 hours a week to paying the mortgage and feeding the family. Only a very small class of people within the city-state enjoys the leisure-time state of freedom its economic and political rulers. And because the ruling class is not producing food, those who are food producers must spend extra time making food for those who are not. The Shoshone require the same average 2,000 calories of food energy every day as do 
any other humans. However, they expend on average only two hours a day to acquire it because they were a nomadic people who moved from place to place following their food supply. As the seasons changed and food became scarce in one place, they simply moved to another. If one food wasn't available, they knew where and how to find another. Toronto University professor Richard Lee found that the similarly structured tribal group, the Kung of the Kalahari Desert in Africa, spend less than 15 hours a week, two hours a day, attending to gathering food and the other necessities of life. The rest of the time, he said, they played, told stories, and made music. John Yellen of the National Science Foundation found the same to be true of the Hottentots, another hunter-gatherer group in Africa. The Shoshone had an elaborate and meaningful culture and religion. They generally did not suffer from famines or plagues. They had lived comfortably and happily on their land for at least several thousand, perhaps as many as 10,000 years, keeping the land as clean and pure and productive as it could be in that desert and mountain region, living harmoniously with their neighbors. At the time Mark Twain took his ride through their territory, the Shoshone had accomplished over a thousand years a second achievement, which is regularly touted by our leaders as the highest goal of humankind. They had eliminated warfare. There was not even a word for war in their language. The Shoshone lived a tribal life in one of the most desolate parts of North America with a population density that ranged from one person every 50 square miles to one person every 100 square miles. A typical tribal unit was a single extended family of 5 to 20 people, and they traveled at a leisurely pace across a wide area. On those rare occasions when others, including whites, came to attack them, they simply ran away and hid. The occasions for attack were rare, largely because the Shoshone accumulated no wealth. They had no systems for preserving and storing food, minerals, or anything other than what they could carry. In this regard, they were not poor. Their lives were comfortable, their family interactions meaningful, and their food supply ample. A symbol of this is found in the highest status act a Shoshone could commit in the presence of others, to give them what he had. Generosity is how one achieves social standing among the Shoshone, whereas the accumulation and control of surplus food and possessions were how whites achieved social status. They were called the diggers by whites because they often dug in the ground for roots and food. Uh, Whites assumed this implied some sort of agricultural stupidity, but in fact the Shoshone had a deep and rich knowledge of life in their environment both above and below the ground. They used a sacred digging stick to extract food, and it was both manufactured and transported with ritual and ceremony. If a stone had to be moved, a different type of stick was used. When a Shoshone looked out at the natural world, she saw a landscape rich with life, both visible and hidden. That life was known to her, called to her, spoke to her, and often guided her. Last Hours of Ancient And uh, Al in Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, Al, what's up? Listen, I'm calling because uh, a bunch of Neanderthals keep badgering me about the election and uh, saying that it was stolen. And uh, now they're pointing to the audit down in Arizona, which is a complete farce. I have an idea to stop all this nonsense. Why don't we just do a full 50 state complete audit forensic of the election? Validate each and every vote, its source, who cast it, when they cast it, and put this nonsense to rest once and for all. We have nothing to fear. It's already been done by every state, Al. What's that? It's already been done. It's already been done by every state. When when the state no, certifies, no, what do you suggest? No, that they be I'm recounted? Do just what they're doing in Arizona, a complete recount of everything. Every vote, just so they have. But they're not doing a complete recount of everything. They're only doing a recount. Okay. 
Thank you very much for the call. And my apologies to anybody who, who might have uh, gotten the, the word there. Okay, uh, so no more calls from Al in the future. Lynn in Kansas City, Kansas. Hey, Lynn, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I'm very disturbed by first the Vice President Harris saying we're not a racist country. And then it sounds like you're capitulating on your rant. And this is so frustrating. I mean, we are a racist country. We were founded on racism. We continue it today. When Tim Scott said that, my husband and I burst out laughing. It was so obscenely stupid. It was funny. I, why are you capitulating on this? Um, well, I'm not capitulating. I'm, I continue okay. to believe that America is a racist nation. It was founded in racism. But the point that I was making is that there are some nations who literally still have racist laws like we had, right, pre-1965, of who can own a home, who can vote, who can, you know, fill in the blanks, right? The, and we're no longer that. So we're working in the direction of not being a racist country, but we are a country full of racists. We are a country full of, uh, <laughs> you know, racist institutions uh, still, you know, contaminated with racism. And we still have a long way to go. So hidden racism is OK. I don't think it's hidden. I think it's I think it's out in the open. I think, you know, well, I think you know, I'm and, saying, and, Tom, as much. Yeah. Uh, gains as we have made, they're still not getting loans. They're still not getting into school. They're still not getting this. They're still not getting that. I, I mean, uh, we have races. They're not laws, but there's certainly practices in yeah. place. I mean, we are, if you're kind of measuring us up against, uh, you know, a current apartheid out there somewhere. Well, that's a pretty low bar. I mean, well, you know, I, yeah, I, I get that. I, I'm what I'm what I'm trying to do, Lynn, is acknowledge the racism in America, acknowledge the progress we've made in this country, and also acknowledge that there are a few other countries that want us to become like them. And we're hoping when Donald Trump became president, and particularly if he was able to steal the next election, that we would become like them, who are actively engaging in racist laws and racism as the foundation of their countries, whether it's Modi in India trying to create conflict between Hindus and Muslims, whether it is the, the, uh, in Myanmar, the military going after the Rohingya, whether it's the Chinese going after the Uyghurs, there's no shortage of examples of countries where there the are US actual racial the laws. To certain people. <laughs> yeah, but but yes, I don't I don't disagree, and that's and and that's where I'm not backing what, off. How, when, okay, well let's ha- let me ask you this: What motivation do you think Vice President Harris had to say that? So she doesn't look like an angry black woman or, you know, what's the angle for saying we're not a racist country? I think that's possible. I think she might have been splitting hairs like I am. I think she didn't want to be the center of the news cycle on something that, you know, while Mm -hmm. they're trying to sell a major program, let's not have a diversion. I, you know, I can think of a half a dozen different reasons why she would have said that. Um, but Basically, we're, out of time. we're a racist country. <laughs> she couldn't <laughs> there say you it. Go. There you go. <laughs> Lynn, thank you.
It's good to hear from you. I appreciate the call. 56, well, it's, it's the end of the show. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and people. been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.